Well, Happy New Year. Great to have you with us today as we're studying the book of Jonah. We're going to study Jonah for the next six or seven weeks together. But before we dive into chapter one, verse one, I want to spend two weeks giving you some background to understand why is it that Jonah doesn't want to go to Nineveh? And why is it that someone reading the book of Jonah would have been suspect even before they began reading it about Jonah, his character, and his priorities? Now, what do I mean? Well, we'll start today looking at an area of the Bible that Jonah's story begins. And it's back in the book of 2 Kings chapter 14. You see, what happens in 2 Kings chapter 14 with Jonah shapes how he's perceived. You see, Jonah was the spiritual advisor to Jeroboam II, to which we're like, who's Jeroboam II and why should I care? Well, Jeroboam II was a very evil king that Jonah was the personal spiritual advisor to, which would have made anyone in his audience like, oh, I'm not sure I can trust the prophet Jonah. In fact, it'd be like saying that Jonah was a, a spiritual advisor to Richard Nixon or gave personal dating uh, relational advice to Bill Clinton. You'd be like, oh, I'm not saying those people don't need it. I'm just saying that maybe he didn't do a good job, right? In today's culture, it might be saying, hey, Jonah helped advise Epstein prior to his death. That's the idea of why Jonah is so suspect. And what we're going to find today is that what happens in 2 Kings chapter 14 is the same thing that happens in why he doesn't obey God initially to go to Nineveh. You see, Jonah allowed his material hopes, political hopes, financial hopes, militarial hopes for the nation, he allowed his material hopes to fog his spiritual glasses. It kept him from focusing and seeing what God wanted to focus on rather than what he was focused on, which is why he ended up not really speaking out like most prophets did against Jeroboam II, but rather focusing on what the king could help him accomplish. Now to understand that, we need to go to the history of the time. You need to understand that the Assyrian Empire had taken over the region. In fact, if you look on a map, you'll see the Mediterranean Sea and the small area of Israel, but Assyria had exploded over the nation. They were a world power. And Noah, Jonah rather, was hoping, he was longing to, to restore the good old days. What do I mean by the good old days? Back when David was king, we were a military power. Back when Solomon was king, we were the military might. But even Solomon, even Joshua, even David had never expanded the region of Israel to the full extent of God's promise back to Abraham and Jacob. What do I mean? Well, here's what God coveted with his people as to how big and expansive the promised land was. God said, I covenant with you. To your descendants, I have given this land from the river of Egypt to the great river, the river Euphrates. Also, I give to you and your descendants after you the land in which you are a stranger, all the land of Canaan as an everlasting possession and I will be their God. So let me show you on a map 
the full extent of what God had promised Israel. Because it's pretty expansive. From the Nile all the way over to the Euphrates, all the way up. Now nowhere in Israel's history, even under Solomon, had they fully taken hold of even half that land, even a third of that land. When Joshua occupied the promised land, instead you'll see that little bitty region zoomed out and this is how it was distributed amongst the 12 tribes. So Jonah is longing, he is hoping that this king, this Jeroboam the second king, will finally expand and Israel get back to not only the good old days, but the best of days. And he's gonna see Jeroboam, though he's evil, might be able to accomplish Jonah's material hopes, military expansion, and finally taking over politically the kingdom of the world rather than being a minor piece of a larger puzzle with the Assyrians. So how about you and I? Do we have a tendency to allow our material hopes to fog our spiritual glasses? I know I do. And when that happens, I begin to get God's priorities mixed up. And I need to re-examine what it is I'm seeing and not seeing and allow God to defog my glasses. So let's look today at 2 Kings chapter 14 and three examinations. Now the first examination that Jonah had that we need is real simple. Examine what priorities you focus in and away from. All right, there's certain things you say, now that's important and that is less important. You focus in or zoom in to what you think matters. But there's other things that probably should matter that we have a tendency to focus away from, to ignore, to make less important than they should be. Look what happens. So we're in 2 Kings chapter 14, verse 23 and 24. In the 15th year, Amaziah, the son of Joash, the king of Judah, that's the northern section is Israel, the southern section is Judah. Jeroboam, the son of Joash, is king of Israel. That's the north section. He became king in Samaria and he reigned for 41 years. All right, so that's the king. What do we know about the king? Well, look at this next line. And he did evil in the sight of the Lord. He did not depart from the sins of Jeroboam. So what's he saying? One, he's evil. And two, he's continuing the practices of the previous administration's evil intent. So the Bible comes right out and says, whatever you need to know about this king, he's evil and he's continuing the evil tendencies of those who've come before him. All right, this is not a great thing to have on your resume, let alone recorded in the Holy Scriptures for all people of all time to read. However, despite that fact, notice what Jonah says. He did evil in the sight of the Lord. He did not depart from the sins of Jeroboam, the son of Nebat, who made Israel sin. So it's just like piling on, piling on here. Now, this king, Jonah's king, Jeroboam II, was a military success. Because Assyria had lost some power during that time, Jeroboam took advantage of that and really pushed the expansion of the kingdom in a pretty pretty significant way. So the prosperity of the kingdom began to expand in Israel as Assyria was pushed back, even though God said, the guy is evil and is practicing evil and was making my people sin because of his leadership. Now, however, the Bible mentions something good. 
He, Jeroboam II, restored the territory of Israel from the entrance of Hamath to the Sea of the Arabah according to the word of the Lord God spoken of by the prophet Jonah. So Jonah had told him, Jeroboam, God's going to use you to expand the kingdom. And he did. On the map here, the green section is the southern area of Judah. The yellow section is all the expansion that went on through Jeroboam. So meaning Judah's down here, green here is Israel, the northern portion of it, but here's all the expansion that occurred up in the yellow section because of Jeroboam's military conquest. And it says here that Jonah said, yep, God's gonna use you. Yes, go, 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 go. Well, that's true. So Jonah decided to focus on how God was gonna use his military might to advance their political agenda, to advance their military rule. But at no time does Jonah ever say, hey, stop being evil. (laughs) Hey, you're practicing the sins of the past. Nor does he say, you're leading your people astray. And that's why Jonah is suspect. When people get to the book of Jonah, they're going to say, I don't know about this Jonah guy. He focused on, sure, we expanded as a nation in our territory, but he never focused on the behavior, the evil character of what was going on with Jeroboam II. Now, don't you do that? I know I do. I have this tendency to to not focus on the things that matter, the things that maybe should matter to me, to God. I was talking to a friend recently at Horizon. He's a friend he's been mentoring. This friend's a very um, successful in business. We've got a long legacy of success. But he said, as I've been mentoring him, we've been going through the Bible together, what continues to strike me is that he's so angry at his kids. I'm like, well, you know, uh, A lot of times kids do dumb things, right? He said, yeah, but here's the deal. He can never see where he's wrong. And his kids certainly have acted, they're adults now, but they haven't acted always appreciative to what he's done. They haven't always taken the business he's built and appreciated that and they've taken for advantage of it as second generation wealth. But there's some other areas that he needs to apologize for. Some areas that he needs to own up to and ways he's behaved toward them that his ability to influence them spiritually would go such a long way if he'd be humble, ask for forgiveness, and lean in and apologize for what he's done. I said, why do you think he doesn't do it? It's like he can't. He's so focused on what they've done wrong, so focused on what they're not doing that he can't even take a moment to focus on what he's done, what he needs to change where he might need to examine himself. It's the same idea that Jonah has, right? Often we're so focused on our kids' bad behavior, our spouse's bad behavior, our our boss's bad behavior, an employee where, where they've fallen short. And I'm not saying there isn't some credence there. In fact, that's the problem. There is some credence there. And so we focus on that and refuse to focus on, well, God, what might I need to change? Where might I need to repent? Where might I need to confess? So how about you? 
Are there some areas that God might want to convict you to say, hey, I'm so focused on the military expansion of a project. I'm so focused on, in my own life, accomplishing A, B, or C that I've ignored my relationship with God. I haven't made time with God a priority. Maybe this new year is a time to examine those things and focus on the things that matter most to God. Let's look at our second examination together. Now, to understand why this was so easy to do, it's because archaeologists have dug down into the area of Israel during that time. What they have found in Tezrah is about the 8th century, prosperity boomed. There's a significant change in the the houses, in the archaeological finds to say something happened under Jeroboam II where the economy was booming. It was exploding. And because of that, people were focused on, including Jonah, the military expansion and the financial excess rather than the fact that the king was doing evil things. So that brings us to our second examination. Look for ways that God wants to focus you on what matters. What really matters and where might God want me to refocus? Look what happens next. Now he did evil in the sight of the Lord. He did not depart from the sins of those before him, but he restored the territory. Now notice here, what are we going to focus on? The fact that he restored the territory of Israel or the fact that he did evil in the sight of the Lord? They're both there. They're both true. So the question is, which does God want me to focus on? I'm not going to ignore the other one. But the question is, which one takes higher priority, right? That's the idea getting here. In your life, there's lots of important things. There are true things. There are good things. The question is, which would God want me to focus on? Now, this is part of God's expansion of the land, a promise going back to Abraham. So it's not like it's bad that they're expanding. But evil's a pretty strong word, right? Wouldn't it be the role of a prophet to address both? Yes, let's fulfill the promises of God, but also let's not do evil stuff, right? But Jonah doesn't. Notice it says, now, he expanded the territory according to the word of the Lord God of Israel. So this was God's word to him, which he had spoken through his servant Jonah, the son of Amittat, the prophet who was from Gath and Hefer. So again, we're all susceptible to this. Why am I focusing on this thing and not that thing? Why have I chosen to not hear the truth about one area, but I'm so laser focused on the truth in some other area? Well, the Lord saw the affliction of Israel was very bitter. In other words, Assyria has been smashing away at them for for years and God cared. Even though they had an evil leader, even though they were under duress, God saw them want to deliver them. He saw the affliction was very, very bitter. Whether bond or free, there was no helper in Israel. So God raised up a king to help them, to deliver them, to push back the Assyrians. And the Lord did not say that he would blot out the name of Israel from under heaven. God's not given up his promises. Even though the people have given up on God, God has not given up on them. But he saved them by the hand of Jeroboam, the son of Joash. Now this is shocking. 
One, it's shocking amount of grace. God loves his people who are rebelling against him and says, they've got no helper, I'll be their helper. Incredible grace. The second thing is, God's gonna use someone evil, Jeroboam II, to punish or push back on someone more evil, the Assyrians. And this is a pattern that many of the prophets had to wrestle with. Habakkuk's got a whole book struggling with why God would use one evil empire to conquer another evil empire. But God in his grace and God in his sovereignty is saying, I'm working in the midst of my people. And it's almost like there's this sandwich going on here of evil and good and evil. What do I mean? Well, think of it like, a, like an Oreo. In verse 24, we learn, Jeroboam was evil like his ancestors. That's not good. They're right in the middle. Jeroboam is prospering and the nation's prospering just like Jonah prophesied. God gave a word. It's true. It's being fulfilled. Then it kind of comes back with more bad news, which is God used an evil king to defeat an evil empire oppressing them historically because they are embittered by the pain. So here's the question. Our second examination. What does God want you to focus on? Do we just focus on, hey, this can get me what I want and we ignore the two other sections of evil or areas that we've been rationalizing? In fact, psychologists have terms for this. They're defense mechanisms we use to filter out the truth when it comes from our circumstances, when it comes from God, when it comes from our spouse or our kids, when things come our way that we should be thinking about, focusing on, meditating on, maybe journaling about, man, why do I do that? Instead, we use these psychological defense mechanisms to keep ourselves from hearing the truth. Here's a couple of them. I do lots of them, maybe you do too. One would be denial. That's not true, not true. I'm not gonna listen to that. I do that, right? Acting out. How many times in the midst of a fight do you find yourself acting rather juvenile? Well, I wouldn't have done this if you hadn't done that. It's like I thought I was 35 years old, I thought I was 47 years old, and I still have a tendency to act out when I feel criticized or someone disagrees with me. Projection, I project on you things that maybe are anger I have toward the office, anger I have toward my own parents, I project onto my spouse or onto my boss. Deflection, what's deflection? You bring truth to me and I deflect it. Well, you know what? I wouldn't have done that if you hadn't done this. Or or maybe deflection comes this way. You come and confront me with something and I deflect it and say, well, you need to realize that um, that can't possibly be true because of the way you said this. Your tone makes what you said illegitimate. Deflection. These are ways that we keep ourselves from hearing the truth. A couple more. Regression, we regress back to, to juvenile behavior when we're confronted with truth. Compartmentalization, we compartmentalize. I don't have to think about this area of temptation because I'm more focused on, in Jonah's case, military expansion. Don't worry about the evil behavior. We're so good at compartmentalizing. Rationalization and filtering. Now what is rationalization and filtering? Rationalizing is I rationalize all the things. Yeah, well you need to realize I did such and such because of so and so and and it's really okay. We excuse, we rationalize. 
and we filter information to say that can't be true about me because I don't see myself that way. That's why the second examination is so tough. It's not easy to focus on what God wants you to focus on, but we've got to have the courage to examine what's really going on in our own lives. I know for me, there's many of my strengths that become weaknesses in this very area. In fact, I love to get stuff done. It's almost, it's not almost, it's an obsession. I love accomplishing things. I love taking hills that no one else can take. I love the satisfaction of checking something off the list. So much so that I often focus on getting something done fast when I probably could focus on getting something done well. Now the two aren't mutually exclusive, but I find that sometimes I'm so focused on getting it done and getting it over with that anyone around me who says, well, maybe we could fix that, maybe we could make it better, I end up minimizing their strengths. And because of that, I've certainly hurt people around me in my life. Because I'm focused on one thing, accomplishing things, the satisfaction of having something done, the people around me who've said, well, I think there's some ways we can improve. Let's slow down a little bit. Let's make this even a better product. And and in my marriage, that's certainly been true. My, My wife is so good at seeing details. And often I see those details as things that are slowing me down or things that are, are you know, just being critical. You know, why, why don't you see the bigger picture? And because of that, I've unintentionally hurt people. I've certainly hurt my spouse over time because instead of affirming maybe the ways in which her strengths have been brought to the table, I've instead thought of her strengths as something that's keeping me from the goal, right? The goal of checking the box. And so God's been working on that in me. Maybe he wants to work on something in you. It may be like for me, it's not a weakness, it's a strength. And it's your strength in one area that you become so hyper-focused on that you end up minimizing the strengths, different strengths of people around you. Maybe like Jonah, we need to examine how God might want to shake us a little bit. And we're thinking that God's showcasing our strength when he may want to shake us and show us that our strength has an unguarded weakness. That's certainly what he's doing to Jeroboam. What do I mean? Well, for Jeroboam, there's two kings going on, a northern kingdom and a southern king, but there's also two prophets speaking to Jeroboam. Jonah, who's in the north, and Amos is in the south, and Amos is going to come up and speak to Jeroboam, and he's focused on something very different than Jonah. He's like, uh, no, God is not showcasing your strengths, Jeroboam. God is trying to shake you and shake the whole nation out of their evil practices. What do I mean? Well, Amos says in chapter 3, in that day, I'm going to punish Israel for their transgressions. This is not good news. This is not all expansion all the time. No, I will visit destruction on the altars of Bethel. That was the big church up in the northern section of Israel. And the horns of the altar shall be cut off. It's going to be bad. And fall to the ground. And I will destroy the winter house along with the summer house, the houses of ivory. They're going to perish and the great houses shall come to an end. Now I mentioned this was a time of incredible prosperity. Did you see it? 
There's summer houses, there's winter houses, there's ivory houses, there's houses for everyone. You get a house and you get a house and you get a house. And God said, you become so focused on your prosperity that you've missed out on morality. and You've missed out on the truths that God is trying to shake you. And, and Amos goes on to say, he's gonna shake you literally with an earthquake he's gonna send. And God does. In history, Amos mentions in chapter six and chapter eight, the land itself is gonna shake you. God's gonna shake you with an earthquake. God gives a command. The great house is gonna be shook, shook into bits. He shall send the land into a tremble and everyone mourns who dwells in it. I saw the Lord standing by the altar and he said, strike the doorposts that the thresholds may shake and break them on the heads of them all and I will slay the last of them with the sword. He who flees from them shall not get away and he who escapes from them shall not be delivered. Is it possible that he could be talking about the same guy that Jonah said, good job, God's gonna enlarge the territory. How could Jonah and Amos be so out of sync? It's because Jonah allowed his material desires to fog his spiritual glasses. Because Amos goes on and on saying, God does want us to expand the land but not in the name of evil. That's that second examination. Now, a little more background about that that earthquake. In Tel Hazar in Israel, they found around 760 BC evidence of a massive earthquake that occurred. So about 50 years later, Amos is warning, if we don't change, if we don't repent, if we don't realign our path, God's gonna shake us out of this. And about 50 years later, that's exactly what archeologists find that God did. He shook them just like Amos predicted. Which is why our original audience has a tendency to have a little more confidence in what Amos is saying and how it was fulfilled than what Jonah was saying in the situation. Now, this earthquake gets cited through scripture. Another prophet, Zechariah, will reference back to it many years later. You shall flee through my mountain valley, for the mountain valley shall reach to Azel. Yes, you shall flee as you fled from the earthquake in the days of Uzziah, the king of Judah. At the time Jeroboam is king of the northern section, Israel, Uzziah is the king of Judah. So during that time, you fled of the earthquake the same earthquake that Amos spoke of about 100 years earlier. So he's saying there's this reoccurring thing that God will shake you out of your tendencies. He'll shake you to get your attention. We get to help people who are doing that in their own life when they're being shaken. How do we help people who are going through times of shaking? I remember a good friend who was coming to Horizon during a time that He was shaking. There was some problems in his marriage that was leading to a divorce. And his wife had put down an ultimatum. And he had had no interest in spiritual things his entire life. But it was this shaking of his family and this shaking of his marriage that forced him to lean forward. He started coming to Horizon for the first time and he came to our exploring service. I had many, many conversations with him and And he began to develop a spiritual interest that has grown over the last 10 years. 
And he would say, I was focused on the wrong things. There was lots of evidence around me from my kids, from my wife, of ways I was arrogant, ways I was all about me. But it took the shaking, the earthquake of my marriage falling apart to finally stop filtering the truth and learn to be humble. It's one of the reasons we as a church have two services, right? We want to create environments for wherever people are spiritually, when God begins to shake them, when they realize all the success doesn't bring happiness, or the shaking of their circumstances leads to need something else, we're here as a church to comfortably connect people to God, to come alongside people during that time. Because we're all going to go through times of shaking. And only the truth can set us free. And God wants us as a church, as a people, to befriend people, even those who are being shaken. Now there's a third examination we need to look at. It's the idea that God wants to use you in your current circumstances, whether you're being shaken or being prosperous. He wants to use you in what you're going through and what I'm going through to contextualize the gospel, to bring the message of God through our circumstances. And I think for me, I don't often see my circumstances through that lens. But if we do, it could bring incredible purpose and hope to the challenges in front of us. What do I mean? Let's look at that third examination. The third thing is asking God, really, God, help me examine my own mindset, my own perspective. God, I want to see the ways. Help me examine the ways that you can use my life to contextualize, to put in context What does wisdom look like here? What does grace look like here? When when I want to get revenge, what does it look like for me to contextualize, put in context, your supernatural forgiveness of my enemies? What does it look like for me to hold on to your courage when my courage is gone? Now this becomes true of Jonah as we step into the book of Jonah. God uses him even when he's rebellious, like Jeroboam, even when he is rebellious, like the nation of Israel, he uses even his rebellion as the context to display his work. What do I mean? Well, a little background here. Jonah chapter 1, verse 1. Now the word of the Lord came to Jonah, the son of Amittah, same thing from 2 Kings, saying, arise and go to Nineveh. Okay, where did Nineveh come from? Ah, Nineveh is the capital city of the nation of Assyria. Remember that big map? This is the capital of the opposing political enemy of Israel. These are the people Jonah hates. He says, go to Nineveh. Cry out against that city for their wickedness has come up to me. And you think Jonah would be like, I can't wait to deliver that. I get to tell my enemies they're wicked and God's ticked off about it. As we'll find as we study Jonah, Jonah is deathly afraid that God might let them repent. Jonah chapter 4, he kind of gives us the inside scoop. I knew it, God. I knew you'd be gracious. I knew you'd be kind. And I knew you'd let those people repent. They don't, I don't want them to repent. I don't want them to have mercy. I want them to have a lightning bolt. That's why Jonah doesn't want to put his life in the context of Nineveh, into the context of Syrian Empire. He doesn't want them to know about God's love, God's forgiveness, 
and God's second chanceness. He hates the Ninevites and he hates a world filled with Ninevites so he's gonna rebel and go the opposite direction and be swallowed by a great fish and spit back out and now he's in need of God's mercy and he's gonna stomp his way through Nineveh still angry, still rebellious and God's gonna use his rebellion as the context to drive the Ninevites to want to change their ways. What? What do you mean, Chad? Well, let me show you. You need to understand what's going on in Assyria and Nineveh. They served a god named Dagon. He was the fishman god. Think of him like Poseidon or Aquaman. They worshiped a god called the Aquaman, Dagon, the fishman god. So imagine a nation serving Aquaman, Dagon, and all of a sudden a guy starts wandering through the city who's Skin is white as can be because he's been sitting in the belly of a fish. He looks like, you know, dead man walking. He looks like walking dead. I've spent three days having all my skin bleached with Jonah, with belly uh, whale from uh, the acid from from a whale, right? And he tells a story. And God used the fact that a whale swallowed him as the perfect example of if you don't Turn from your God and find mercy from the God of Israel, the the true God. God's going to bring judgment. And it becomes the perfect context for God to display his message to the people of Nineveh. And as we're going to find out, they do repent. And Nineveh was a massive city. When he walks through that city, it's like a multi-day journey. The city walls miles and miles and miles wide, built right on the Tigris River, gigantic walled city of Nineveh that they didn't think could ever be destroyed. And yet Jonah will walk his way through there and just say, repent or God's gonna blow this place away. Not really delivering the message the way God intended, certainly not with the heart God had. But God will even use his rebellious circumstances to display the gospel. What if we don't have to let God use us in our rebellion to contextualize the gospel? What if instead we say, God, help me find ways to cooperate with you to take my current circumstances and allow you to use them to display your grace and mercy to the people around me? I had a chance to to talk to a friend this week who told me that exact story. My friend Lisa was going through a very challenging time 10 years ago with, with cancer. And when she got her cancer diagnosis, like all of us, there was an immediate, why me? This is so unfair. What does this mean? What does this mean for my marriage, my kids, my future? And she said, Chad, when I was going through that, I had to make a decision. And my decision was to change from why me to say, God, why not me? Why not me? Lots of people go through cancer. Lots of people go through bad circumstances. God, why would I think that I'm suddenly owed better circumstances? She said, instead of being bitter and angry, though I grieved and cried a lot, I began to change my perspective to say, God, instead of why me, why not me? Use me in these circumstances 
to show people what your courage, your hope, your resurrection power looks like in the midst of cancer. She said it changed my perspective. In fact, I began to find ways as I sat in the, in the waiting room, so I began to interact with people around me. I began to listen, to cry with them, to tell me your story, where are you at? In fact, God began to use me in my cancer so much that, that the surgeon actually took my phone number. I said, here's my phone number. If I can help anyone out who's a few steps behind me on the journey, please give out my name and phone number. And she said he did. And God began to use this difficult circumstance, but her perspective of God, use me, contextualize me, help me to defog my glasses. It's not about me and the bad stuff happening to me, though that's true. I want to refocus on what matters to you. How can I glorify, bring credit to you during this time and in these circumstances? She said, and God did. In fact, you know, going through cancer and and going through surgeries, I struggled with body image issues. I struggled with all kinds of fears and insecurities. And God allowed me to walk with people through those circumstances. How about you? As you look at 2021 and all the hopes we all have for a happier and healthier 2021, what would it look like for you to say, God, will you defog my spiritual glasses? Maybe pick one thing. What is it that you want God to defog in your life? Say, God, I want to focus on your priorities. What's one priority you want to refocus on? See, the book of Jonah is called the John 3.16 of the Old Testament. For God so loved the Ninevites, he sent his, his, his representative, Jonah, to tell them of his grace. And they will repent and they will turn and God will forgive his enemies. And the ultimate Jonah is Jesus who says, guys, you were in need of mercy and grace and I came and offered it to you on the cross. And when you were blind, I came to find you. When you filtered out the truth, I still pursued you. It's out of that grace that we're able to love our enemies because we were God's enemies. We're able to say, God, my glass has been so fogged and so messed up, forgive me and help me to see other people with that kind of compassion and patience too. So can I pray for you that this will be a year that you just pray, God, defog my spiritual glasses and pick an area, an opportunity in my life, uh, uh, an obstacle in my life, a priority in my life that I've got out of whack. And God, help this to be the year that I am focused on you and bringing glory to you in whatever circumstance I find myself. Let's pray together. Father, We thank you that you're the kind of God who loves us, that pursues us. You've got that John 3, 16, reckless love that we say, God, I need you. I desperately need you. And may that be the heartbeat of how we worship, the heartbeat of how we act, the heartbeat of how we find you in this new year. And we ask this in Jesus' name, amen.